Today's episode is brought to you by Olga Recovery. Now, typically when you hear ads on podcasts and on TV, your brain shuts off as mine does. And so I'm just going to tell you about Olga Recovery, why why we promote it, and why it's useful. So Olga is a curved three-quarter inch metal tube with a large ball on the end of it. And no, it doesn't go in your ass. (laughs) So Olga is a tool that is used to break up the fascia that surrounds your muscle. Now, what is fascia? Fascia is this very smooth elastic sleeve that sits around the muscle. No, we're not doctors or physical therapists, so do not take anything that's coming out of my mouth too seriously because I just Googled this and figured it out for myself. However, you can do your own research and put the words that I'm saying to pieces of your body. So what Olga does is you wrap this thing around your back on the muscles that you have just been working out and you apply the amount of pressure and strokes that it takes to break that fascia up into this smooth, elastic, and flexible material that coats your muscles the way it's intended. And you go ahead and you make that nice and smooth and flexible. And what that does is help you recover It helps you regain the strength and flexibility that you need to perform at your best. Go to olgarecovery.com and place your orders. Um, Thank you, Brian. You're welcome. For that very in-depth, detailed version of Olga Recovery. And on my end, we're going to do some advertising for our buddies over at Draugr Blades uh, during COVID, again, we were talking about COVID. During COVID, um, we had some serious uh, job shortages, and we had a buddy of ours start up his own gig and start completely crafting custom blades and doing all the work himself. Uh, he puts out a badass product, and he fucking donated the knife to our show to give away to one of you listeners. And... That being said, we, it may have been a little bit of confusion and people may have been scared to p- kind of give us some, any kind of information and or, or submit a, a letter of gratitude. Just fucking email us, text message us if you have our personal lines um, or hit us up on Instagram and tell us a company that has struggled through COVID, through shutdowns, uh, or just in general that maybe could use some advertisement. I'm just going to go ahead and advertise my buddy Travis out there with Tiger Green Lawn and Landscaping. He's been in business since early 2000. He's one of the top landscapers and lawn maintenance guys, one of the biggest companies in southern Baton Rouge. Hit him up, uh, 806 or 225-806-9848 for all the uh, southern Louisiana boys out there. Give him a call. Um, But, yeah, that's what we're asking for is – just a name of a local company or local business that needs some advertisement and send us uh, send us that in an email or in a IM or whatever, and uh, you'll get your custom knife. Pictures of that knife are on our Instagram, if anybody would like to take a look. Yeah, check out Draugr Blades on the Seabad Podcast Instagram page, or check out Draugr Blades on their own Instagram page. 
Welcome to the Seabag Podcast with Mike and Brian. At 0517, we crossed the line of departure in a combat V formation with a 3rd Tank Battalion. We were pulling a line charge behind our Amtrak with fine combat engineers. We immediately ran up against several enemy tanks that were defending the minefield just past our LOD or load. Close air support was used to eliminate tanks with the approach of the first enemy minefield. Upon reaching the edge of the minefield, the Amtraks advanced with their line charges and ignited the rockets pulling the line charge out across the minefield in a 2,200-pound C4 line. Once deployed across the minefield, the engineers and the Amtraks attempted to detonate the charge. Several failed to detonate, and this initiated the failsafe of sending the lone engineer into the perimeter of the, mon- the enemy minefield, which was a blasting cap, fuse igniter, and a 40-second fuse. Lance Corporal McNeil was the chosen one to exit the rear hatch of the Amtrak and run into the minefield under sporadic enemy fire. Lance Corporal McNeil ran into the minefield under cover of the tanks, supporting fire, and punched a hole in the C4 to insert the blasting cap. He then pulled the fuse igniter and ran back into his Amtrak. The line charge detonated and opened a path across the minefield. And that's an excerpt from the winning submission from the Seabag Shit Shelf giveaway uh, that we did a few months back, uh, last year actually. And joining joining us today is the author of that excerpt. Uh, He's a Marine, served as a combat engineer with the 1st Combat Engineer Battalion during Operation Desert Storm, spent six years on active duty. Uh, He's an entrepreneur, small business owner, Washington State Certified Master Hunter, Senior Construction Manager and Heavy Equipment Operator, former advisor on various community boards, and welcome to the show, Mr. Bob Jensen. Wow, thank you. That's pretty crazy to hear that. I mean, it takes me all the way back to being 14 years old when I decided to join the Marine Corps. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've been a big supporter of our show from kind of day one. And I'd first like to just reach out to you and, uh, and say thank you for, you know, for all the support that you give us and the constant feedback, uh, on all the episodes. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, and, and the so when you were 14 and dreaming of the Marine Corps, where were you at? Well, actually, I was on a trip to San Diego with my family, mm-hmm. and I was up on the hill, uh, and uh, the, the lady I was with, I said, what's all that racket down there? I could hear all this yelling constantly, and she said, you want to know what it is? Come on. And her husband was a retired Navy guy, and so she took me down there, and you know, I didn't know what it was. We went on to MCRD. Oh, wow. And... <laughs> we drove down through, it was a Sunday. So everybody was, you know, doing their Marine Corps thing on Sunday, which is fairly chill. Mm-hmm. And we drove down towards the chapel and there was a drill instructor with two little privates carrying his books or whatever. And we pulled up next to him and rolled the windows down and he walked over and he said, what can I do for you, ma'am? And she said, I'm trying to convince him to join the Marine Corps. And he just looked at me with that smoke he pulled down over his eyes, and he just said, I hope to see you soon, son. <laughs> and I can still see myself sitting there. I mean, I was just 
dumbfounded by what I was seeing. Those little privates, they didn't move. They were just statues standing behind him. And the look on his face and the, you know, the uniform and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It was pretty uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And it set my path. I mean, I knew right there, looking in that dude's eyes, that that's, I want that. I want to look like that. Whatever it was I saw in his eyes. It's crazy. <laughs> so, that's, uh, that's badass. I don't think many people have had that type of experience. No. Uh, seeing kind of the live training before, you know, before you were enlisting. Yeah. Well, you know, if I had seen the rest of it, might have been a different story. Might <laughs> have changed. Join the mind. Air Force instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, where did you spend uh, the rest of your childhood till you went to boot camp, man? Well, I grew up in Port Angeles, and I just kind of kicked around. Here. I played football and you know miscellaneous things, and got involved in weightlifting. You know, at seventeen, I knew I was going in the Marine Corps. I was in the delayed entry program, and I thought I better, I better hit it. So I started going to the gym, and I ran all the time, and you know, was physically prepared for it. Yeah. And so, you know, childhood was a typical childhood and a good, yeah. good home, good life. And, uh, was really just focused on that. I tried to get out of school early to go to, in the core and my mom convinced me otherwise. Huh. What was your first job? You- oh, sorry, buddy. Go ahead. No, no, you're good. Go ahead. Uh, what was your first job? First job, like in civilian life? Civilian life. Oh, I worked at a grocery store pumping gas. Oh, wow. I had the old cash registers where you punched the buttons and pulled the lever and tax mm-hmm. was on this cash register. Non-tax was on this other one. It was a mo- back that was a- in the day. <laughs> yeah, back in the day. It, that was the first time I ever got introduced to tax. I was like, well, what do you mean that it goes on this cash register? I don't understand what you're talking about. No shit. So, yeah, it was, you know, it was a whole bunch of like 75, 80-year-old men that worked there. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I was, God, I think I was like 14, actually, when I had that job. And I'd go out and pump gas and then if nobody was doing anything, I'd go back into the the magazine aisle and look in the mirror. If the old guy was behind the counter, I'd pull Playboy out and yeah. scroll through the pages and see what was going on. <laughs> so we're not we're not that different after all. <laughs> no, probably not. Um, so so early life, you're just dead set on on enlisting. So everything probably revolved around the idea of of joining the Marine Corps. Everything you did was, was based off of that. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I was pretty laser focused and, you know, little did I know that that was my personality was when I get locked onto something, it's happening. And that was the first thing that I ever really looked at and went, okay, I'm doing that. Now, when you were in that delayed entry program and for people that don't know, that's kind of where you sign the paper, but you're, you're spending like a year in high school and you, you've, you've already went through the, the swearing in process and they already know you're going to go. They've already got you by the balls, but did you get to choose your MOS at that time? Well, I did. I mean, they, you know, I wanted to be heavy equipment operator. That's really what I wanted to do. And so they said, well, we can guarantee you're going to be a combat engineer. Mm-hmm. Well, to me that meant, okay, I'm going to be a heavy equipment operator. Okay. Now, did you, so you didn't have any, any clue on what that job actually entailed before you, you just thought you're going to run dozers. That's what I thought. Okay. I thought that was, that's, that's what I was going to be doing for the Corps. And uh-huh. there was a warrant officer, chief warrant officer here in town. And he took me up to the reserve unit up on Whidbey Island, the Marine Corps reserve unit. And he let me run a bunch of equipment up there and it just sealed the deal for me. Oh, so okay. I was like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do, man. Yeah. And so what was the, the initial shock into boot camp though? Oh, I fucked up, <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
got off the got off the bus and everything and you know it was just a shit show mm-hmm. and uh I was physically prepared but I wasn't mentally prepared and I had a lot of friends that were a couple three years older than me that joined the Marine Corps and so I had seen them come back from boot camp and stuff and they looked perfectly normal they were cool but they didn't fill me in on the details of having a drill instructor up in your shit constantly and you know, the head games and all that stuff. And so that was a bit of a culture shock to me right there because mm-hmm. I had a very passive home and, uh, you know, that was an education right there. And you pulled the yeah, trigger Bob, on something. Bob, how did you deal with that? When like most guys, cause of course, back in the day, you know, you, when you enlisted, the Marine Corps was probably completely different than where it was now or where it is now with regard to, you know, just treatment of the new guys with, you said you just were completely caught off guard with it. How'd you, how'd you handle it getting in there? Was it just kind of rolling with the punches and then you just figured it out or did you just get your ass beat for a while and, and, and hazed it? You know what I mean? Like how, how did it pan out? Well, I found that if I remained semi-neutral and didn't try to be uh, too aggressive or whatnot, you know, that nobody, nobody messed with me. The drill instructors, you know, they took their turns on everybody and so I found that I could just fall in line. And when my turn came, I'd just take it and, and move on. But, you know, when they thrash the whole platoon um, or, you know, you're on the quarter deck for 45 minutes doing bend and thrusts, you're kind of singled out and there's really not much you can do. You just keep going and just ignore the yelling and, and the pain and keep pushing through it. But, you know, when I got to second phase, they made me a squad leader. When, when we got to the rifle range <laughs> and they took me immediately outside into the sand and just destroyed me. Yeah. And they were like, you're fired. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and I was like, fine with me, man. You know, obviously I didn't say anything, anything but sir, yes, sir. And I left. Yeah. And, uh, I just kind of rode it out the rest of the way, you know, it was no Superman by any means. I just, I just kind of fell right into the middle and it's like, mm-hmm. all right, I just got to finish this out and learn what I can learn. And, so you perfect you perfected the the gray man, I believe is what they call that. You're not bad, you're not good, you're just there. You're just a pair of boots. But when you you know after after boot camp, you have to hit um, was it the you know the infantry? You got to have some uh, rifle training. Uh, what's that? What's that called? Where you um, well, oh, well, MCT? Uh, no MCT. No. I, it, they had SOI then. Oh, okay. And uh, I didn't go to SOI because uh, I was a combat engineer. And so uh, back then you didn't, you, you know, you stuck to your MOS. Okay. And at the end of boot camp, you know, the drill instructor had us up on the quarter deck and we were all sitting there and he said, called my name and said, you're a combat engineer. Mm-hmm. You're blowing shit up. And I was like, <laughs> uh, you know, I wanted to say, no, I'm supposed to be a heavy equipment operator. But instead I was blowing shit up. Like yeah. my warfare. So what was what was that like going from from boot camp into into that combat engineer school? Well, I found because I went to Camp Lejeune, Courthouse Bay. Mm-hmm. That was where my schooling was, and uh, I loved it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't love Cor- Courthouse Bay necessarily because the Amtrak Battalion was there, and you know everybody there had freaking faded white camis and they just wanted to poke at you nonstop because you're a boot. Yeah. There's no mistake in a boot when you have super green camis. It's like, (laughs) all right. So the school itself, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I have an engineering mind and it's just like, it wants to be creative and do stuff like that. And so, you know, I learned bridging and construction and landmine warfare and a lot of explosives and how to destroy metal and wood and 
you know, different things that had no idea, you know, how those were going to serve me. But I paid attention. I, I, you know, I studied it. I took it seriously. I learned formulas and how to calculate material and what material you needed to cut what material. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I felt successful and there I could see where, okay, now I'm starting to move up. I'm not the gray man anymore because nobody's up on my shit constantly. Mm -hmm. It's like, now I can do what I feel like I want to do, which is learn and, and be good at whatever it is they put in front of me. Gotcha. Okay. So technical difficulties. We're having internet connection issues. Anyhow, Bob, you are back in Camp Lejeune at Combat Engineer School, and you are getting into the meat and potatoes of your job description. Can you tell us a little bit about how that training went? Yeah, the training went really well. Mm-hmm. Really just started to settle into, you know, what the job was that they, they had given me, which was not heavy equipment, but explosives. Mm-hmm. And... um you know, they taught me bridging, they taught me construction, landmine warfare and whatnot. And, um, I just really settled into it that, that this is what I want to do. And, um, and, you know, just set forth to do the best I could at it and studied a lot, learned a lot of stuff about explosives and whatnot and the formulas and just, uh, you know, I just felt like I was in a good place where I should be even though the heavy equipment battalion was right over there and I could see him doing their thing and I was pretty jealous, but still I, I, you know, I just rolled with it. Yeah. And, and what unit did you get sent to after that? So from there I went to first combat engineer battalion, Mm -hmm. Bravo company. Uh And I showed up there and I think it was November or December of 87. And those guys were all in the field. So I got to the barracks and you know, there's basically nobody there, but the, people on duty. And so I spent, you know, a day or so there by myself, kind of checked in, got my gear and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then these guys rolled back in from the field and I was like, holy shit, look at these guys. You know, they were all dirty and seasoned and all their, you know, they had all of their gear and, and it was my first real uh, exposure to, you know, what Marines look like and what they were up to and and yeah. whatnot. And I just remember looking at them like, oh my God, serious? This is, you know, the I don't look anything like that. Yeah. I look like a little 18 year old kid with bright green camis on. And it was, again, it was a little piece of culture shock right there. Yeah. How'd you, so that your new guy experience was pretty, pretty solid or? <laughs> it was very solid. Um, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't really pacifist or anything. And so I just kind of rolled with it and I just, I found that I fit right in. Okay. And it was probably, you know, probably a month. So we started moving into the, you know, 96s and whatnot for Christmas and stuff. And so kind of just got to know them while they were cleaning gear and going down to the motor pool and, you know, doing whatever. And then we came back from Christmas and New Year's and went right to the field. Mm -hmm. And so then I got to integrate with them and you know, started learning what they do. So where, where, where was your first deployment, your first training deployment at? Well, that particular deployment was just in the field around Camp Pendleton. Okay. But shortly after that, we deployed to Honduras mm-hmm. and I went down there with, I think it was fifth Marines. And, um, uh, it was a killer deployment. I mean, it was hotter than shit down there, mm-hmm. it, you know, so it was like May, I think, mm-hmm. but, um, 
it was really cool because we set up our shelter halves out on the runway and mm-hmm. we just hung there and all of a sudden the the Blackhawks would come in and pick us up or the, you know, we get in a C-130 and we'd fly out to these remote locations and land on these dirt runways or airstrips and, Mm -hmm. and basically set up security, go into the different villages and look around and see what's going on. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, we'd get airlifted out of there to go do something else. And so it was only down there maybe in three weeks or a month that time and bounced around and, uh, but it was really cool. I mean, to, to go from high school to I'm sitting with my door, feet hanging out of the side of a freaking Blackhawk flying yeah. across the top of the jungle. It was cool. What, uh, what was your mission down there? What was your, I, I don't even know. Yeah. I was a PFC. <laughs> so uh, I really don't even know what our mission was overall. And that was a long yeah. time ago, but you know, obviously my mission was to provide security Yeah. at that point in time. I didn't really do any combat engineer stuff. Mm-hmm. What, uh, so going from Honduras, what, uh, where did you, um, what was your next deployment after that? Uh, my next deployment after that is I went on a Westpac. Mm-hmm. So got on a ship down in San Diego. I was attached to India 3-1 and I spent a year with those guys. And so we went all over the South Pacific, um, tons of training. I was on a, uh, over the horizon boat crew. Okay. So I went to Coronado, California and trained down there. You know, same place as SEALs train, nothing like the SEALs, but, mm-hmm. you know, similar boat training. We did a lot of surf training and every night at, you know, 10 o'clock or so we would head out and we do night operations and, and then we started getting on ships and the, the ships would take us out. We'd cruise around and at 20 miles out, they'd flood the well deck and we'd come out of the well deck in our rubber rafts and we would navigate our way to shore, go do whatever the mission was and rendezvous with the coxswain and get back on our boats and head back to the ship. What year was that at? That was 88. Okay. Um, 88 and into 89. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that's what made me feel like, okay, I'm in the Marine Corps now. Yeah. Because, you know, here I am spending a year with the infantry, which was bitching. It was so fun to just do everything that they did. And um, again, I thoroughly enjoyed that operation mm-hmm. there we had a tragedy over in australia we got upended in the middle of the night mm-hmm. came up over a coral reef and the waves were breaking over the coral reef we probably shouldn't have been out there there was like 18 foot seas and mm-hmm. unfortunately like a dozen of our boats got upended and one of our guys drowned but oh, wow. um you know it's it happens in training it, it happens and it's very unfortunate for him and mm-hmm. but we just kept moving on. Yeah. And and then moving close a little bit farther from from that training op, uh, what was your mindset right before Desert Storm kicked off? Because there was probably a little bit of, uh, you know, media attention given to that area. Did you guys have uh, uh, an idea that you guys were going to be deployed over there at the time or not? Well, you know, literally I wasn't paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um I was just doing my thing and, and combat was the furthest thing from my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, I take that back. So when I was on the Westpac, uh, Panama went down. Uh-huh. And so we were beelining for Panama. And before we got to Panama, they called us off, but okay. we were the next people to go in. So, mm-hmm. you know, but it wasn't the same. It's like, okay, we're going to do something, which felt no different than a training mission. When the Middle East kicked off, I literally turned on the TV in the barracks mm-hmm. one day and I went, oh, that's not good. Mm-hmm. And the next day, it was pack your shit, 
take your vehicle down to supply and park it. And nobody said anything, but you know, we had all our gear put together the next day and got on a bus and went to 29 Palms mm-hmm. and went out in the desert and just set up a little encampment there. And, you know, nobody was necessarily saying anything because they didn't want people talking or calling home or anything. And remember, this was before cell phones. So yeah. unless you're at a pay phone, you're not saying shit. <laughs> and I don't even think they had that many pay phones at CAC. So you'd have probably a line of 200 Lance criminals trying to get in. And uh, Oh yeah, I'm sure. And I don't even think they let us go to the phone, honestly. Yeah. What, um, so you, you show up, you, you, did you have any type of desert training before you went other than just a little time at CACs? No. I mean, you know, just training around Camp Pendleton, which is semi-desert, but the actual desert warfare training was Amtrak. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, combined arms exercise at 29 Palms, Mm -hmm. aircraft, uh, ground tanks, infantry, the whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. But that was a couple weeks worth of desert training. Gotcha. And so, you know, when we got there, literally, I think I got up there on August, August 7th or 8th. So it was really early, like a day or two after they invaded Kuwait. Mm -hmm. Now, when they, when they, uh, when you guys got into country and and, and where, where, where did you start from? Where'd you land? I'm not sure where we landed, but we landed at some air base that was near a port. Okay. And... Bob, can we, uh, you mind going back just a shade and, and let's, and talking about a little bit of the tempo for, uh, I know there wasn't much of a workup, uh, before your deployment, but what type of attitude did you guys have when you were training? Um, how, how were y'all adjusting to just normal training versus just going straight into combat? Well, none. I mean, literally we had a day's notice. So mm-hmm. the, you know, the invasion happened Two days later, our gear was packed, and like on the third or fourth day, we were at 29 Palms. So there was no preparation. We were of the first to head out. And they kept us at 29 Palms for, you know, a week or so, maybe nine days, and then they put us on aircraft, and off we went. So training, no, it's what we had. <laughs> and and training before, you know, months before your deployment, was it pretty lax or were y'all, were y'all kind of hardcore? No, we we're pretty hardcore. I mean, uh, first combat engineer battalion, you know, they're spread out across, they support all of the first Marine division. So you might be with a tank battalion, an LAV, uh, an infantry unit, you, you know, some people might go to recon or whatnot. So it, right. it was, you know, we were always doing something. And so I felt comfortable in my Marine skin, but you know, until you're standing there looking at it, you just never know what's going to happen. And, you know, right. it showed when it all went down. Yeah. Right. Can you get into a little bit of the shock and awe of that kickoff and, and that, that letter you wrote, that letter of mm-hmm. gratitude for the Seabag shit shelf, if people would like to go back to um, that episode and, and listen to it, it gives a pretty good detail of some of the actions that happened that day when, when the shock and awe started. Yeah. So if you could give us a little little taste of yours. Well, so we were there, you know, for six months before the war even happened. And so we were up on the border and mm-hmm. every night, you know, something would be going down. And pretty soon you're starting to see the bombers and you're, you know, you're starting to hear everything that's going on. <clears throat> so it was rather stressful, you know, even before the shit started because you knew it was coming. And, the, and I had this first sergeant, first sergeant Luella, and every morning, it's a good day to die good day to die gents he would say and you know 
that's the way our day would start. Yeah. So when when the when the, the night before the war, we pulled up to the border and we dug a couple of revetments and we stuck our Amtrak's in there. And mm -hmm. I, you know, we're sitting on this hill overlooking the terrain. And in front of us, you can you can see the revetments and whatnot that the enemy had built out there. And I thought, okay, well, this is it. I'm going to get a little bit of sleep. And a, a unit of 155 artillery shows up. And they literally sat up 40, 50 yards from my revetment. And they fired all night long. And <laughs> so I got to sit there on the hill, which was cool. I sat there on the hill and I watched them. You could see the enemy out there. And they were dropping artillery all over these guys. And um, it was pretty cool to see. And then all of a sudden, here come the B-52s crisscrossing out in front of you. And, you know, I was in awe of the American might and what was going on. And I was just going, holy shit, this is for real. You know, <laughs> they're doing a fucking arc light out in front of me. And I had heard about that, you know, guys talking about it in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't believe I was seeing it with my own two eyes. Yeah. So, you know, it was the, the, the that's really when it started. So that was, you know, that was like from 10 o'clock until two in the morning. And at zero two, or so we got in our vehicles and we started moving to the line of departure. Yeah. And, you know, as soon as we crossed the line of departure, then it was like a mile or so of, okay, we're just cruising across the desert. I've done this before. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the artillery started falling. And that shit, that's when you could see who was trained and who wasn't trained. And everybody just kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, not froze, but it's like, oh shit, what do you do now? Mm -hmm. And there was probably a minute or two minute gap there, which I just, I could see it so clearly that we're all looking around and sort of like, what do we do? They're shooting this big shit at us. And, and, you know, obviously what do you do? You push through and you assault. And that's what we did is we just kept going until we got onto the artillery and we got into their positions and then just started to destroy them. And, you know, that turned it into mortar fire instead of artillery fire. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, that was really when the shit, you know, got heavy right there. Yeah. And it kind of continued Fall, to like falling back onto your highest level of training right there. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I, I obviously the tankers knew what they were doing. I mean, they were shooting stuff from great distances away and we had, uh, Cobra helicopters with us and they were, you know, they were just, they, it was cool because they would fly within our formation and they would really just hang with us. And they would destroy stuff, you know, that, that the tanks couldn't quite see or anything that was up on the horizon and whatnot. And you could see the people out there and these guys are shooting them with freaking missiles. Yeah. There, there was one dude standing out there. I couldn't, I, it was the first person I ever saw get shot. He was standing on this berm and all of a sudden he was gone. Mm -hmm. He was gone. The All the soil around him was gone and they shot him with the main gun of a tank. And I was just going holy shit jesus this is for real now and and then it was game on the tankers didn't let up from that point forward if it moved if it had a weapon if they didn't have their hands in the air then you know they got destroyed which is exactly what you know you've been taught mm -hmm. it's like me or you what kind of a leadership role did you have at that point uh, i was a corporal so you know i had my own squad of engineers in my amtrak and i was in the the tank commander's hatch uh -huh. and, you know, just 
running the show for whatever came along. Mm-hmm. It was it was pretty cool. I felt bad for my guys because they were in the back of the Amtrak and they had no visibility to what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I got to watch this thing from a front row seat. I mean, everything you can think of. And those guys are down there in the back. Yeah. And I had a combat photographer with me and I've always, I, 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 I never got his name. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted to see, you know, if he had any pictures of what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you a story real quick. This combat photographer, he was the same thing as my guys. He wanted to know what was going on. And so he tugs on my leg and he's like, hey, I want to get out there. And we were under heavy mortar fire at that point in time. And I had my hatch closed, you know, within about four inches because I didn't want one dropping through. So the dust is coming in and the concussions banging us around. And he's like, I want out. Mm-hmm. All right. I opened the hatch. He climbed up on top of the Amtrak and got up there to take pictures. And it wasn't more than 30 seconds. And this staff sergeant came head first through <laughs> the hatch into my lap because, you know, it, and all of the dust and debris followed him down and his eyes were big as saucers. And I was just cracking up because <laughs> I told him not to do it. It was funny. So I hope you got some good pictures. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be cool to see those pictures nowadays. But, um, you know, after after this combat deployment and um, seeing what you saw, coming home after that experience, can you tell us a little bit about your mindset? Well, you know, I got deployed two more times after that. Or correction, one more time after that. I got back and I got sent to Okinawa for a year. Mm-hmm. And I was in a supporting role. And so it gave me time to kind of decompress a little bit. Um, I felt like this is not where I belong. You know, I'm, I'm in a supporting role and I felt like I should be doing something else. And so they got a hold of me and said, we want you to go to Somalia. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, fuck. All right. I've already done it once. So I may as well do it again. And so I got my stuff. I got on the truck and they, the guy from the S shop came out and said, well, you, you only got three months left. So we're not sending you. And I told him, well, just extend me. Mm-hmm. Nope. You're not going. So I got off of there. I went in and talked to the career planner and I tried to re-enlist. I wanted to be heavy equipment operator. I tried to re-enlist and he said, the MOS is closed for sergeants. Because obviously I was a sergeant by then. And so I just went, fuck, I'm getting out. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of a good thing because one of my friends, Chuck, went down there and, you know, he said it was just, it was awful. Mm-hmm. Because of what they had to do, you know, with the, basically they had a rogue, you know, force, mm-hmm. you might call it. Kind of a bunch of rebels. And he said he had to you know, do shit that really haunted him. And I could see it in his eyes and, and he got shot in the leg and I just looked at him. I was like, man, I'm glad I didn't go because I can see he's carrying baggage. Mm-hmm. So when I got out and came back, I literally went back to Pendleton, you know, they gave me a checkout sheet and they're like, do you have any problems? Is this hurt? Is this broken? Well, no, I I'm fine. I just want to go home. I'm done. And I got home and, you know, I, felt like a fish out of water, you know, everybody was still doing the same thing around here. And, and I didn't feel like I fit in. And so I went to college, Mm -hmm. which I thoroughly enjoyed, but you know, I had a few episodes where people wanted to fuck with me a little bit and I reverted back to my old skills, you know? And so I had them at gunpoint Mm -hmm. and at that point I realized that, okay, I got some issues here, you know, because that's not normal. That's not right. That's that's not what people do. I should have just, you know, 
threw down with them. But instead, I it's like, this is what I know. This is what I've been trained to do. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of just muddled along through civilian life and just thought that, you know, this is, this is the intensity level that you carry throughout life. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, because I checked, nothing's wrong on that list. You know, I just kept going mm-hmm. and didn't seek any sort of assistance whatsoever. You know, and it's, it's not that I'm messed up necessarily, but I had issues that I probably should have dealt with as a youngster, mm-hmm. you know, from some of the stuff that I saw. So where did you pour that intensity into, um, you know, you, you went to college, what, what did you go to college for? Did you, did you really kind of engross yourself into that path? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Same thing, you know, like studied constantly. I learned everything that I could about electronics and computers and it was a telecommunications course. Mm-hmm. It was a trade school. So it was a year and a half trade school. Mm-hmm. And again, I loved it. I mean, it was right up my alley. It was putting stuff together and figuring it all out and problem solving. And, and I liked it a lot. And, um, I didn't feel too out of place there because there were some other military people that were in my class and not that we chatted about it or anything, but you know, we just kind of existed together and, and, uh, I felt okay. But again, you know, the intensity followed. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What was your, what was your first venture after college? uh, My dad had a telecommunications business and Mm. so he had become work for him. And so I'd go install phone systems, build computer networks, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, I charging at it. My brother was always like, dude, slow down a little bit, you know, let's, let's attack this thing in three phases instead of one. (laughs) And, and, you know, after him telling me that multiple times, I realized that, okay, maybe I'm a little too over the top ambitious to get shit done Mm -hmm. right now in one fail swoop. And, and, uh, you know, didn't know where it came from. Yeah. Just, just, I think that's, I think that's pretty standard for, for most guys coming out of, of the military that intensity, Bob. And I think that's awesome that you had kind of touched on that and you were able to, to notice that intensity and kind of be able to back off and put your efforts towards something else. Well, I, you know, I don't know if it was backing off as much as it was just life was guiding me, you know, forward and I didn't know where else to go, but besides give it all I got. And, you know, I've listened to all your guys' podcasts and I hear you talking. I'm like, oh, yeah, yes. I hear some shit that you guys say about things like that, intensity and aggression or uh, passion or whatever. And and sometimes I hope that my wife hears this to know that it's not just me. It's like this is <laughs> this happens to people, you know, and, and the Marine Corps soaks these kind of people up. Yeah. They want to be hard chargers. Now, I never wanted to go over the top, top of the berm and rush the bunker. You know, combat was the furthest thing from my mind and I wanted to live mm-hmm. and I knew I wanted to live. But, you know, when I listen to some of your guys' stuff, I'm just like, yes, fuck, yes, okay. Uh, those are normal things. Yeah, maybe they need to be managed, but they're, you know, they're normal in people that have been exposed to or or maybe part of it is just your makeup and your characteristics. Mm-hmm. But that's that's extremely badass for us as, you know, guys in our mid thirties to hear that coming from an older dude like you hearing you get amped up from, 
from our passion because you don't hear that as much anymore. Most of the times the older guys are just kind of like slooped back in their chair, just chilling. They're like, ah, a bunch of, you know, a <laughs> bunch of young bucks, whatever. But it's, it's interesting to see that, that kind of fire reignite in you and, and be able to see it that way. And, and that kind of touched me a little bit hearing you, hearing you listen to us and, and get amped up from it. Well, it, it could go, you know, to anybody because the, you know, so many of the things you guys discuss are life skills that you may know them and you may know them well, and you move on in life. And all of a sudden you forget about life skill number 17, because mm-hmm. you've moved on to 30 other life skills. And so, you know, so many things that I've heard in your podcast, podcast, it just makes me revisit those things and go, okay, let me, let me catch up on those things and try to catch up where I was. And, you know, I may overlook some other things along the way too, but it's just been, it's been great to, to revisit a lot of things that you guys have talked about. So that kind of intensity, is that what drove you to start your own business? Um, well, really what, you know, the, the first business was me and my brother and my dad and my, my mother was involved too. And uh it was a great family business and we had a good time doing it. And, you know, I, I pushed really hard to do additional things in there because I had other things in my head. And, you know, one day I, you know, I worked on buildings, I'd go wire a hospital or the college or whatever. And one day I looked out and there were some guys up on the pole Mm -hmm. putting cable up on the pole. And I went, Hey dad, how come we're not doing that? And he said, well, here, call this guy. And so he gave me this guy, Bill Robert's phone number. Mm -hmm. He ran XL utilities and they did underground construction. And so I called Bill and Bill's like, Oh fuck. Yeah. You want to buy some trucks and we'll just dominate this whole thing. And you know, okay. And what I come to, came to find out with Bill is he is just, he is the ultimate on, entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I mean, the dude is smart and he's just, he's got his ducks in a row and he's like halfway between mellow and halfway between intense. It's this weird combination of mm-hmm. things. And so he really showed me how you build a business plan, how you mortgage the shit out of your house to pay for stuff. And, but you do it because your business plan says it's going to work. Yeah. So we went through this phase of we did, he did all the underground construction. I did all the aerial construction for the phone company and whoever else. And uh, we dominated, just like he said, we were the only people out here and we did everything, no matter who you called or what construction was going on. One of us showed up and it was pretty cool. And then one day he said, well, why don't we own all of this stuff on the poles? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know if that's legal, Bill. And so he drove to Olympia and he talked to somebody down in Olympia and he came back and said, absolutely. They said, we can do it. And so we started our own fiber optic company and yeah. we, you know, I knew how to do fiber optics because I'd been trained in it. I knew how to do aerial construction. He knew how to do under construct, underground construction. And so we drafted one more person, a guy, Craig, who was the super mellow guy. Okay. And so now we've got this these three people that are trying to balance everything out. I was the aggressive one. Mm-hmm. Craig was the passive, you know, logical thinking one that made you slow down and Bill was in the middle. And so the entrepreneurship really came together with the three of us putting our heads together and trusting each other and knowing that, you know, if two people said it was going to be this way, you just went with it because we trusted each other really well. And so uh, you know, I pushed as hard as he could. Craig made things happen logically. 
uh, financially appropriate. And um, it was just an awesome business that thrived. And again, we dominated the entire market. We took all the business from the phone company and whatnot. And, and, and it was really cool. We had a great time. And ultimately, we sold the business. Mm-hmm. Now that, that, do you feel, because when you were mentioning before that, that you might have had some issues that you might have put on the back burner, how did you, how did you cope with that? Other than the extreme intensity at work and what you were doing, what was your what was your relief valve? Well, you know, I spent a lot of time outdoors. I rode motocross. Um, I hunted a lot. I mm-hmm. went to the gym faithfully at zero five every day, and so you know, I just I just kind of burned it out. You know, if I rode a motorcycle, it was. I rode that son of a bitch until I crashed. You yeah. know, I just did it as hard as I could do it. And it was a good and a bad. Yeah. Fuck know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yeah. That's that's what I'm fucking talking about. <laughs> what uh when what what age did you start to hunt? Uh I would have been 27, I think, right after I got out of the Marine Corps, I came back and my brother had family in Eastern Washington. Mm -hmm. And I had done a little bit of hunting before, a little grouse hunting and whatnot, a little deer hunting, but nothing serious. And so my brother took me hunting and he took me to an environment that was, you know, rich with deer. Yeah. And I was able to harvest my first deer. And I was like, fucking A, man. I, I had all of my military shit. That's all I had. Yeah. I froze my ass off (laughs) because it was November and we're out there and I'm wearing black boots, cami pants. I had a Gore-Tex top and that was it. And yeah, it was a painful thing, but it was fun. And a buddy of mine that I was in the Corps with, he lives in Spokane. And so he came up and we got to hunt together and Mm -hmm. I could see the pain in his face, you know? And so he was suffering with some of the same issues and, and I recognize it, but you know, I was like, okay, well, that's, that's what we're doing, man. We're just, we're making our way through this thing. (laughs) Yeah, it, the thing about hunting, and you know, we're not live on video, so I can paint a little bit of a picture. But we're actually sh- uh, sitting in, in Bob's workshop right now, and you know, pretty much surrounded by um, by by uh, you know racks of antlers and and the harvest that you made over the years. And you know, I've had the privilege of of being able to hunt with you um, before, and there is you know. There's some people that 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 do not enjoy it and that that don't like it and that they they don't see the value in it. But there is a for some people there is an extremely um, satisfying and therapeutic aspect to just being outside and you're you're playing a, a chess game between you and an animal and and, and essentially you and your dinner right. and um, just that that level of satisfaction when you make a harvest. And you you put that you bring that food home to your family and you're able to feed them is something that it's it's a feeling that you can't replicate anywhere else and it's and it's uh you know that that feeling when you when you do come across you know your harvest can you talk a little bit about your emotions when that happens because I know that's a unique thing for for everybody I know that you know, you go through this wide emotion range of, you know, for me, myself, there's this intense, um, not sadness, not happiness. It's just the gravity of the moment of, right. of taking a life, but mm-hmm. not doing it out of anger or spite, 
but in reality doing it uh, almost out of love, love for your family, love for the animal, because the, the, that animal is not going to meet a, a, a pretty death out in the wild. It's going to either starve to death, freeze to death, or get eaten. And so, you know, taking a mature animal out of its element when it's, when it's had time to reproduce and go through its life cycle, and now that animal is going to feed your family. Can you talk about your emotion, your mindset during that time? Well, I'm an animal lover. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I really do love animals. I'm totally compassionate for them. And it's kind of, it's the dichotomy, you know, it's totally that. Because the first deer I shot, I cried. It made me so sad to see that deer laying there. And I'm, you know, I looked at its eyes and I examined it and whatnot. And I was like, holy shit, it was a deer. It was just doing its thing. And, you know, I ended its life and I felt really bad about it. So I gutted it and I pulled the liver out and I ate the fucking liver right there because <laughs> that's what you do. And my brother's like, because my brother said, well, you got to take a bite of the liver. Mm -hmm. All right. He was in disbelief when I did it, but it's like, I, you know, I felt better about it. Yeah. For whatever. Yeah. reason but every deer sense i take the time to respect it and appreciate what it is and what it gave for me mm -hmm. because i'm not i'm not a killer i do not like to just kill shit you know and not have a real purpose for it yeah and you know the the hunting piece of it for me over the years has been everything up to that point of squeezing the trigger Mm -hmm. You know, it's all of that shit. And then it's, you know, I, I could probably be mostly just as satisfied with a camera that I got myself into that position. I got within 35 yards or whatever it was. I was in the position when the perfect animal that I was looking for was right there. And I did it. Bam. I took a picture of it. But instead, I choose to bring it home and eat it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, I could go to the store and buy a cow that somebody whacked in the head with a hammer in some farm and processed it and stuck it in Safeway or wherever we buy our meat. But instead I choose to get it naturally and I do everything I can to not make an animal suffer in any way, shape or form and have an ethical kill. Yeah. And, um, I keep going back. I mean, I love to be outdoors. It is like to, to be out there in the mountains all by myself. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's a therapy, I guess. Yeah, that that outdoors. I mean, I experienced it with you, you know, when we were um, out last year in eastern Washington. I think I posted some pictures to our Instagram. And, you know, I had a couple conversations with Micah even during the process when I was up on the hill of saying, you know, it 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 puts things into perspective when you are out there. I mean, especially in where we were, where you are without you know, your bang stick or your bow and arrow is you are not the apex predator mm -hmm. of that area. No, not at all. And you could just as easily be lunch as, you know, taking, is taking food home. And that, that kind of humbling is something that I find real value in, especially when it comes to hunting. Right. And, and that kind of respecting your environment, the planning phase, all of those things, in a way they translate directly from the military. And so you, re I, I mean, I, I rely a lot of the, you know, the planning phase uh, mm -hmm. that I learned in the military. But another thing that we, you know, were taught and beat into us in the military was leadership. Right. And at what point did you realize that the, the leadership skills that you were employing either came from the military or they had a lot of influence on you and your business? Well, I've always... 
uh, not really knowing it, but I've always been a natural leader. I felt it in the, you know, the second half of my Marine Corps career, as I got to be a corporal, especially as a sergeant, I felt very responsible for the people I was in charge of. And, you know, that's when I started to learn uh, more about leadership. But where, you know, where it really came in is I, I had the basics down. And so I cranked through life. And then, you know, probably in my early 40s, I started really paying attention to it and reading a little bit more on it. And, and it upped my leadership game more. And honestly, you know, when I was introduced to Jocko, um, read the book, listened to the videos, and it was like, okay, these are all the things that JJ did tie buckle or, you know, it's yeah. like, they're all there. You know, every single one of these things, get your ass to work and start employing them. Mm -hmm. Well, I sold my business and I went to work as the senior construction manager for a, a company that bought my business. Mm -hmm. And then I really started doing every week. I would focus on some sort of aspect of leadership training. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then I realized that I'm not working for the company. I'm working for these people that work for me. And then shit really started the role because I was really focusing on the single, you know, judgment and justice and, you know, all of those things. I really started to focus on it. And all of a sudden it just became, I, my, it wasn't a job for a long time because my guys were doing all the work because I was doing everything for them. And so they were doing everything for me and it just became this awesome balance. And I, then I really recognized leadership and I was a little bit sorry that, you know, I didn't get, I didn't go to, I, I forget what the leadership course, NCO mm -hmm. school, you know, I took the NCO courses and whatnot for leadership, but I didn't really get the focus training because I really feel like as an E5, it would have just like, it really would have bumped up my game and people would have benefited from it. Yeah. And, you know, I tried really hard uh, my last year as a sergeant. I had, you know, 30 guys and they were all young. They're all PFCs and Lance Corpus and they were young. And so when I got out, I got out. But when, when the next war started, I was fucking sick to my stomach mm -hmm. because I trained those guys and I know some of them are going. I couldn't even work. I had to go home. I was sick. Mm -hmm. It's like, I should have been there. I should have been there, even though I didn't necessarily want to go do that or want to be there, but I felt responsible and I felt, you know, committed to the people that I had trained. And I just, I, I honestly just hope that I had given them everything that they needed to be successful and that the, whoever replaced me gave them the rest of the pieces they were missing. It's funny how you always think about that after you get out, you, anything happens on the news anything at all and you're like oh, i should i should still be there yeah i should i could i can, i'm still in my prime or i'm still <laughs> this i'm still that you know i think i think that's pretty standard for a bunch of hard charging dudes to to always be kind of always ready at all times like you said stay you stayed in shape and and you're still probably just as capable now <laughs> As if, you know, Nothing. coming back, coming back full circle, maybe. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, one of my suggestions is, and I don't know why I don't send this in. It's like, you know, I'm 52 years old. My mind is raging. It's ready to go. And, okay, make me a truck driver. I'll kill it, man. I'll be the best freaking motivated <laughs> truck driver you ever had in the military. And let Joe Schmo go out there and, you know, pound sand yeah. or whatever. So I think there should be a place for people that are mentally and physically capable of doing those type of positions in the military still. I mean, yeah. I could still do it. Uh, 
But if you wanted me to put on a ruck and head up that hill, well, we got some issues because, you know, the older you get, man, the medical issues start piling on. And, you know, I, I mean, uh, some of it came from the military. Well, probably the most of it came from the military. They basically freaking poisoned me. And yeah, which, you know, if we were to bounce back real quick, speaking of that is we were clearing these bunkers and I was throwing grenades in these bunkers. Mm-hmm. And I stepped into this one bunker and I looked over to my right and there was a grenade sitting there with a pin pulled. It was just wedged in between the parapet and the, the little piece of wood. Uh-huh. I, was like, oh, shit. I was like, holy shit. So I picked it up, st- stuck a pin in it. And, you know, I looked in there and just cleared it with my rifle. And I went to the next one and I walked down inside of there and the thing was loaded with mustard gas artillery rounds, the whole fucking thing. And if I would have thrown a grenade in there, who knows who I would have killed? Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, it was like, yeah. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a great story, man. Yeah, I, I was telling I was telling Bob before the podcast that uh there was a a point during one of our deployments where I realized that I did not have my gas mask. And uh, you should have seen Bob's reaction in his face. You didn't have your gas mask on deployment? And I was like, no, it wasn't, uh, you know, didn't have Taliban uh, gas attacks back then. But um, anyhow. Yeah, I don't even think that was on the gear list. Oh. <laughs> well, I was inspecting for it. Everybody else had it, but uh, but me. <laughs> so, different was, gear set, different war. Yeah. You know, I'm sure they didn't carry them in Vietnam too often either, but yeah. they had other shit. I'm sure they had the pack. Yeah. So, um, anyhow, getting back to your leadership when it came to running your business and you were talking about the way that you were looking after your guys, um, right before you sold it, um, how, how did your performance and your guys' performance affect the way that your business ran after you started employing those, you know, focusing more heavy on those leadership trades? Well, um, we were at the top, honestly. I mean, we were, you know, given the volume of jobs we had, the guys were highly successful and get them completed on time, on budget, mm-hmm. and exactly the way you would want them to be. And so I stayed out of their business for the most part. You know, I observed from a distance, I spot checked all their work. And in the end, they had to turn their stuff into me and I would go through it and double check that it was right. And if it was wrong, you know, I would go back and I would train them and go, okay, here is what you missed and here's why we do it. And so I need you to do this going forward. And some of them squawked and it was like, you know, you had to get a little more abrupt with them to, or aggressive with them to, to make sure that they did what they did. But, um, it, it became very successful. And the problem that generated out of that is I got bored Okay. because my job became easy. Guys know what's expected of them. All I got to do is bump them back to center periodically. Mm-hmm. And they were just killing it. And not j- just because of me. I just gave them the tools to do their job. And I supported them the way they needed to be supported. And they did all the work. Mm-hmm. You know, I ran spreadsheets and goddamn reports and payroll and whatever it was. So uh, it really, the leadership piece of it. And, you know, when I parted, I sent them all an email. I called most of them and, you know, apologized for leaving them. And, and they all understood, but 
you know, the, the feedback that I got from them was all positive. And I'm not, you know, pounding my own chest, but I definitely got a lot of compliments on my leadership skills, which, uh-huh. which made me feel good because that was one of the single things that I really focused on the past few years. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to me, that was success. You know, I did my job and I did a good job of it because they recognized it. And so I, you know, for people that are going into business and they're going to have employees and whatnot, I can't even push leadership enough, not just to be the leader, but to understand the leader and understand why and explain why and, you know, lay it all out for the people and, and really be who they need mm-hmm. and you will be successful. There's, there's no doubt. Yeah. You got your shitheads, of course. <laughs> and well, what know, about shitty leaders, Bob? Let's talk about that for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Because I, th- I feel that's, I feel that's half the fucking problem. And it, and, and I, I believe we've all been there and done that and seen right. the bad leaders, but I've also found that a lot of good quality employees leave a company yeah. because of a shit leader. What's oh, your, what's your opinion on, on dealing with that? Well, there's no doubt. And I absorbed several employees because they hated their leadership. And, you know, those are some of the people that really express their gratitude for, you know, the way that our operation ran. And, you know, I took over another group because um, the, the, the management over there left. And so I said, well, I'll absorb it and, and take it on. And, you know, it took a while to, to, to form a relationship and show them who I was because I couldn't just tell them what to do. It's like, okay, here's the game plan you know, run with it. And then I had to teach them and whatnot along the way and, and really allow them to trust me because they did not have good leadership before and they didn't trust their leader. And I definitely saw multiple people leave because they could not stand working for this person. And these are good people, good quality people that they would have performed well, but their leadership got into their head and mentally they're just like, fuck it. I'm not, I'm not doing it for you. And You know, who knows how many people have left for that? I'm sure it's a common occurrence, you yeah. know, and, and people need a job. And so fuck, give them a good place to, to thrive and be successful. Why would you not? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm perfect by any means. I, I've had a shitty attitude many times in my life and I've struggled and, and I just, you know, I've tried to stay away from my employees if I'm that way. Yeah. The other aspect of leadership that I think gets overlooked a lot is taking input, being able to, as a leader, basically shut the fuck up and listen to what your, you know, subordinates, your workers, what they're trying to tell you and, and not just hearing them on the surface value, but maybe dig into some of the stuff that they've got going on. Um, and, and how, how does that, how did that play a role into running your business? Well, it was huge because those guys are the people in the field. They're the ones that are, whatever decision I have made at the corporate level, mm-hmm. um, you know, the corporation that bought my business is huge. They're, mm-hmm. you know, 5,000 employees or whatnot. So it was big. And so I was involved in the decision-making for Washington State, but I tried to think of all the ramifications of making this decision and how it's going to flow to the bottom. And when it gets to the bottom, somebody might not like it or whatnot. And so we had a lot of debriefs. If we did a big job, 
And we had a, you know, we had a mission plan. And one of my guys, he actually gave me a SMEAC one day. And I was like, fuck it, hey. Promote him. <laughs> yeah, I did promote him. He was a, he was an army guy. He was a combat vet from the army. And so he knew I was going to get it. Yeah. And, you know, I got it. And I did promote him for it because this is a guy that was a, this, this, okay, this is a, this is a perfect example of a person that got out of the military and was fr- just cast free. Mm-hmm. He was a train wreck. Um, he was a bulldozer at everything he did. He didn't want to listen. He was angry in life and whatnot. And, you know, I had to sit him down and go, look, we're from the same skin, man. This is, you know, this is where I came from. And so we started to form this relationship and eventually he got some treatment and whatnot. And he became the go-to guy Yeah, because he dealt with this shit. He dealt with the issues that he had packed from the military and, I was so proud of him for taking the time to go through and manage those things and turn them into something positive. And, you know, it's just, it was awesome to see. Yeah. That, that mentorship. And, and this is one of the reasons why we do this podcast is to take all of this input from different people, different situations, different background, um, and, and they could not even have served in the military, but right. there's all of these, everybody, everybody knows somebody that is uh, in the military, a veteran, a combat veteran. It doesn't matter. Everybody knows yeah. somebody. And so the more information that is put out there around this subject is, you know, is, is very valuable. And what you're explaining, this mentorship is something that, um, you know, me and Micah both found eventually as, you know, we, we, we left the military and, it didn't even come from guys that had served. It was just from, from somebody that did like what you said is maybe they couldn't relate in one way or another, but they were, were patient. They were kind, they were firm, they were strict and they held you to a standard that they know that they knew you could perform too. Right. And, and just having that as a young dude or woman coming out of the military is insanely valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, my wife taught me one of the best things to employ with a person because it applied to children is you have a firm set of boundaries mm-hmm. and that's what you stick. Cause I wasn't always that way. You mm-hmm. know, I was like, okay, well, what do you want to do? And you know, a little bit wishy-washy because I didn't, I wanted to make friends and whatnot. And when she laid that out for me that you have a firm set of boundaries and you stick to it, it's mm-hmm. like, huh, you're right. Everybody wants to know the box that they're living in or working in and yes. know that, when you hit the edge, it's time to turn around and you don't test the boundaries. And if you do, you get bumped back to center. Yeah. And it was a valuable piece of information that really, it's really a leadership skill, it you is. know, that I got from a mother that had never been in the military, but should have been. Yeah. And it, it was just one of the fundamental core things that I really laid out there to get these people going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was very successful. And sometimes they were pissed at me, but you know, we worked it out. We, we employed all the different leadership skills to smooth out everything else. And it's like, this, this shit is, it's all in a book. That's the funny thing. It's, it's all in a book. You know, you got a different employee set. And so you're always going to have these variables, but the, the fundamentals of it are all right there. If you take the time to learn it. And I just took the time to learn it because, you know, it was put in front of my face again later in life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate the person that turned me on to Jocko. It's just <laughs> awesome. Yeah, Jocko's <laughs> podcast. Who was that, Bob? 
with Brian. <laughs> Sent me a text one day. He's like, have you heard this guy? And I started listening. I, you know, was given the book and the CDs and all that. And man, that last CD, I must have listened to that last CD, the part where he goes through and summarizes all of the leadership characteristics. I mean, I could not get enough of that thing. It's like, fuck. I just kept hitting repeat in my truck over and over and over. It's like, that's it. That yeah. is the key to success right there when you're in a position that I'm in and probably many other positions in life. It's it just, is. It's just so critical to being successful. You know, I think, uh, I think when I tried to show my boss, Jocko, he, I wouldn't say he was too cocky, but when I said, hey, check this out, he was like, no, I don't need that. And Ooh. and I was like, well, you know, you don't really know what it is. And he's like, well, just just listen to it. It's this guy. I explained what what his what his path was, what his mission was. And and it was almost like I don't want to hear someone that's right because I'm stuck in my own ways. Yeah. And I thought it was a, a very interesting leadership trait that my boss had, where it's like, we're floating right now. I don't want to cause the boat to rock. Yeah, that's kind of a fucked up way to look at things. You know, I used to go to training all the time. Let's say I'm working on a phone system and I'd go to this training class. It's like, I've been working on this thing for 15 years. I know the thing. And I still went to the training course and I left there with snippets of information that made me better. And it's like, man, after that, every opportunity, every first aid class I ever took, every CPR class, it's like, oh, that's right. You Mm -hmm. know? You know, we, this this is why and how we do this stuff. And, you know, people that are closed-minded like that, which I've been closed-minded many times in my life, and I'm fine, mm-hmm. which, you know, we can discuss that aspect of my life too, if you'd like. But, <laughs> you know, the closed-mindedness is, it's damaging to yourself and the people around you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you were saying, Micah, you know, your boss, you probably quit that job sooner or later because it's not listening. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm the guy in the field doing whatever it is. I just need you to listen to this. And this guy has got a lot of valuable information that you might pick up some snippet of information that can make you a better leader, maybe even a better person and maybe make my life better as your employee. Right. And it's, I think it's, uh, it's easy for military guys to see that because if you were ever a grunt or just, or even just an enlisted man or woman in the military, you know that you have better information on site than the leaders do mm-hmm. because you're the one doing the work and the best the, you know the best the best person to talk to is always the person doing the work and if you can't listen to the people that are on the front lines and at least get constructive criticism on maybe what should change you i think you need to reevaluate yourself as a leader in general yeah yeah, and I think that's hard to see unless you're educated in well, leadership, life skills, all that stuff. And the more closed-minded you are and, and maybe uneducated, uneducated not meaning you're a college graduate, but just uneducated in, in you know, business skills and people management skills, the, the simple things that piss people off daily because, you know, for who knows what, what reason. When you open, when you open your mind the the i'm fine attitude goes away really quickly because yeah. if you you know if you go back to like what you're talking about a cpr class and you you might know everything about 
this certain topic. You might be the subject matter expert. But one of the things that I always go back to is like, okay, you might know all about it, but can you teach it? Right. And, oh, you can teach it? Well, can you teach it to a vast majority of people? And can they take that information in and then give you good feedback afterwards? Because when you're teaching a class to somebody or you're teaching somebody a new skill and they have no questions, you have not taught the material appropriately. Because there's always questions and it's your job as that mentor, as that leader, to provide the information in in a stimulating way that makes their mind start to work. And then they're gonna wanna know all these different aspects about this. And so that that you can't just answer those questions responsibly with just, oh, no, it's just the way it goes. Right. And if, if you get to that point where you're saying, oh, it just works that way, and this is just the way it happens, well, now your mind is completely closed off, and w- maybe you don't even know the correct answer, but then you're going to go find it and bring it back to them and say, listen, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm, I, I don't, I'm not the end-all, be-all to this information, but I'm going to go find it, I'm going to bring it back right. to you, and then I'm going to teach it to you. Yeah. And you just don't leave them hanging. You exactly. Just problem solve for them continuously. Mm-hmm. And you know, just like the military, you teach somebody over and over and over, and you guide them. They get muscle memory, and mm-hmm. they know what to do. And you know, first aid or CPR is a perfect example. When somebody's blood is pouring out of them, you better have your shit together and know what the fuck to do because you're going to freeze up or you're going to freak out. Mm-hmm. And and you know, it's like you just need to. Teach your people well, give them all the tools that they need to be successful. And, you know, I mean, really, that's really what it is to be a good leader is, I mean, there's, I don't know, this is, this leadership subject is so huge, but, (laughs) but, you know, the basics are, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And, you know, this is how we're going to do it. And this is why we're doing it. And then you just, you know, keep grinding it into them. And pretty soon they know exactly what to do. And like you said, if there's a question left unanswered, they're going to find their own answer to it. And it might be wrong and they're going to look like a dumb shit. And yeah. that's not what you want. You want them to look successful. Mm-hmm. And so you as a leader have failed them if you left them hanging and didn't answer their questions. And it might, you know, for me, it might be three or four days before I could figure out what was going on. But I always got back to them and did everything I could to not leave them hanging like that. It's like I sought the answer because one what they do directly reflects on me. Mm-hmm. My job was to make my boss look good. And my boss was a Navy guy, you know? And so we clicked very well. He had, <clears throat> he had different, different leadership than me, but, but he was good. You know, he taught me a lot about being calm and patient because again, I showed up at this job like a freaking raging elephant. You know, I was just going and plowing right through everything. And, and he, never made me feel dumb. He never made me feel anything other than, Hey, let me show you this. You know, this didn't get done. You plowed right over the top of it and got buried. And, and he just, he actually gave me a life skill of slow down a little bit, take the time to be a little more detail oriented and pay attention to these things along the way. And I started to employ what he was teaching me. So even though I don't think he had the, he didn't study leadership like I studied it. <clears throat> he still had, he still had the qualities in just a different way. And, and I respected the dude for it. And I still do. I mean, I felt guilty as shit quitting my job there yeah. because I felt committed to him. You know, unfortunately for me, I told them well in advance that I'm going to quit this job, you know, not, mm-hmm. not with any time frame, but I said within the next year to two years, I'm going to be out. 
and unfortunately they pissed me off, you know, and I just, I said, I need some time away and yeah, you know, I moved on. Well, you mentioned something a while back with the, I'm fine attitude and, and that kind of, um, that kind of attitude generally, well, yeah, you ask anybody that comes out of the military, if they got an issue, they're going to tell you, I'm fine. I'm fine. I mean, I've been there. Mike has been there. You've been there. Um, how'd you get out of it? Well, I didn't know I was getting out of it. So, you know, I had some medical issues that were causing me some significant problems. And, you know, I've been going to the civilian doctors for a long time. And, you know, I was just getting through it. And my wife said, you know what? You should go see the VA. You earned it. They're there for you. So go see them. And so I did. And they had a, they had a Persian Gulf syndrome. Uh, uh, I forget what it was, but anyway, it was a list that you get on that. If anything came up, any problems or resolution to the issues that we were having, they would notify you. And so I'm sitting in the room with this nurse and she's going through this stuff and she's looking at me and she comes back with a doctor doc. I've never seen this doctor before. Okay. He comes in the room and he's looking at my paperwork and he's like, have you ever been tested for PTSD? And I went, no, why that I, I don't have PTSD. There's nothing wrong with me. And so I left, you know, and he just, went, okay. So I came back another time, another doctor. And the doctor said the same thing. You ever been tested for PTSD? And I went, no, there's nothing wrong with me. And he gave me a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper was these, you know, 16 things. And I read the piece of paper and I read my life. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, what the fuck is going on here? I couldn't believe what I was reading that, you know, this, he's got my life on a piece of paper. And so I took the piece of paper and I came home and, and I thought about it for a while. And sooner or later, the, you know, anything you do there that has to do with uh, counseling or psychology, it's the mental health people. Yeah. And so the mental health people called me and I went, no, I'm fine. I don't need anything. And, you know, the more I thought about it, I thought, well, what do I have to lose to just give them a call and see what they have to say? Yeah. And so I did, I finally went down and I met with the local person here in town and, you know, she said, well, I think you might want to talk to us. I think it was a psychologist, whatever the one is that doesn't prescribe medication yeah. you know, that actually treats your shit. And I got set up with the psych psychologist, psychiatrist, oh, a psycho. Yeah. Anyway, you know, I sat down with her and, and we went through some stuff and she's like, pick the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life. And unfortunately for me, I had to observe 18 Marines get killed one day and you know, I had to participate and you know, I was there when it happened. And so it was just a, a pretty, pretty messed up situation. And it haunted me. It haunted me for the people that I did help and for the people that I couldn't help. And so we went through the imaginal exposure therapy there mm-hmm. and it was extremely painful. And, you know, because those, those things, they haunted me, like I said, and so we went through it a couple times and then she quit. And so I, you know, was cast off and I didn't do anything about it. I went through this original pain. And then about six months later, I called back again and went, okay, I got to finish what I started here. And I got hooked up with a lady. And first thing she said is, you don't bullshit me and I won't bullshit you. And I went, huh, well, this might work out all right then. Because she had the same attitude that I had. And... She held me to it. And when it 
freaking hurt and I didn't want to say the words, she made me say it. And she backed up and she was gentle with it, but she was firm and she guided me through this whole thing. And she said, you're going to read the book and the book, meaning your life and what happened to you in your life. And, you know, she explained to me that your mind is a filing cabinet. And when you go do shit like that and you have experiences like that, your mind throws these files into the filing cabinet and they don't get organized. And it kind of put a little picture of where I was headed. She said, we're going to read the whole book of your life and then we're going to put your filing cabinet in order. And typically, you know, you resolve one issue, it, it resolves many other issues. And so I worked with her for probably six months and we went through this stuff and she changed my life. She just brought me to this point where the pain I was living with was no longer torture. It was sad, but it wasn't, it wasn't the pain that it was before that I couldn't even, you know, I never, my brother's the only one I ever talked to about it in my entire life. And, you know, you pack that shit with you, you know, it's, it's freaking painful and you don't even know it. And you're just living it through this. I'm just going to fucking run this thing into the ground. You know, I remember days riding my four wheeler throttle as wide open as it would go. And my buddy's like, you need to slow down and settle down. I don't know what's with you. And this, this lady just, she got me through it. And now, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't sit here and tell you this shit before because I just couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't say the words and the pain was, was too much. And I did it. I, you know, I finished it and now I'm able to see it for what it is and not what I thought it should have been. You know, I couldn't control what happened. I did the best I could with the circumstances that were laid out in front of me. And this one guy haunted me because if you've ever looked in somebody's eyes that's dying, it is absolutely traumatizing. And I never knew if this guy lived or died. I just got him out, got him on a helo, and he was out of there. And I was able to find him. And he was like the worst memory of my life. But when I actually got to talk to him, it was just like, oh, my God, you lived. And I wasn't, you know, he doesn't necessarily remember me. He was, he was fucked up bad. But, you know, he thanked me for whatever help I may have given him. And to me, it was like, I can check that off my list that I know whether he was alive or dead, that he was something. I knew what it was. And, you know, a guy lost his leg. He's severely burned and, you know, and, but he's living his life. He's, you know, seems to be functional and happy and, and all the other people, I, I hope they're in the same condition, but I don't even know their names. I just happened to find this guy. And, you know, so, uh, boy, that, that really sent me in a more positive direction. It took my backpack off. It's like this load of shit I've been carrying my entire life. You know, and shit is not a negative connotation for what really happened. I'm just calling it that. I took the backpack off and I felt free. 
and I've never felt free in my life before. So, you know, that's what, that's what got me over the hump to start seeing the positive side of life. Yeah, I was successful my whole life, but I knocked shit over the whole way and somebody else had to pick it up. And now I am able to move forward and not knock shit over, hold my own ground, pull my own weight, and be more detail-oriented, be positive and appreciative of life and everything that's in front of me. And, you know, it took me until I was 47 years old. And so, unfortunately, you know, I had 20 years of pain and suffering, but I feel lucky to be where I'm at. I feel lucky that the VA was there to give me the, you know, to, to tell me that this is available to you. And here I am sitting here able to express it to you. And, you know, I feel honored to be able to say all of this to you guys. And, you know, hopefully somebody else that's struggling with something that's weighting them down military wise, you know, maybe you're abused as a child or who knows what happened to you, a car wreck. It doesn't matter what it is. There is a way out. There is a positive way out if you just do the hard work and it fucking sucks. But man, I feel this, I feel this something to pass it on to somebody else and help somebody else. And I don't know how to do it. And, you know, I'm really appreciative that, that you're doing it through this podcast in so many different ways. Uh, I just, you know, maybe this is it. <laughs> you know, I don't know, maybe living my life in a positive way and just spreading positivity to other people is the way that I express it because I don't know what else to do, but... Yeah, you're 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 living by example, but talking about the ways that you used to cope and and one of my friends kind of puts it in perspective. He calls it white knuckling. And if you're dealing with post traumatic stress or any type of trauma and you are, you know, feeling different emotions surrounding whatever topic that might be. And just like what you said, that your filing cabinet in your brain is not in order. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're literally, you know, white knuckling yourself through these dis- different situations and you're bulldozing, uh, bulldozing over, over these different obstacles in your life. But the inspiration that you're going to provide people and, and are providing people by just speaking about how you overcame this you know, in spite of being successful, because you can be as successful as you want, but your, you know, your, your brain, your filing cabinet cannot be in order. And there's something that's going to be affected by that. Right. And until you sort that stuff out, you may be successful in some areas, but you're going to lack in others. Absolutely. And, and that kind of example is, is, is why we're so blessed to be in the position that we're in. And you're able to amplify your voice to, to, to speak about these things very freely in a long converse, conversation format where you can pick up all these, different, all these different little subtle nuances that come along with this and come along with somebody's life that's dealt with adversity. And, and one of the biggest helping you know, factors for me was, was hearing guys such as yourself, you know, the previous generations of, of Marines and, and other military guys of saying, hey, slow the fuck down. Like, life is not this 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 speedboat of just 
crushing these bumps and, and, and just absorbing all these shock waves and just hanging on for dead, you know, for dear life doing 100 miles an hour. It, is, it isn't like that. Right. And there's a lot more of a finesse way to go about it, but you cannot do it until you get your shit in order. Right. And, and that support from the, from the VA, the support from your family is what helps push you through it. Yeah, no doubt about it. And it's, you know, I, I think back to my 20s and 30s and how I was stuck in this loop of, I can't get out. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. And I listened to one of your previous podcasts about you're never stuck. You know, you can make a decision at any second to do something different or, you know, go a different route. And if, if people could really see that, that, that loop of, I can't problem solve this traumatic thing, whatever it is, there is a way to get out of it. And not only that, it applies to your job or whatever. I, I when I was, cause I obviously I quit my job. I went on to do what? Heavy equipment. Cause that's what I've always wanted to do. I finally pulled the trigger on it and I'm doing it. But when I was going to that job, I was nervous as hell. Mm -hmm. 52 years old, man. I just walked away from a very well-paying job in a great position where I could just chill the rest of my life if I wanted. Yeah. And it's like, I'm fucking soft. I'm sitting at a desk. I'm getting fat. You know, I don't do anything physical anymore. And I had had it. I was just, I, I want to be challenged. I want to work. I want to do something. And monetary was one of the things that was retaining me as well as my commitment to my guys. And I was driving to my project over there and I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast with Dave Chappelle, of all things. Mm -hmm. That dude's intelligent. And he was talking about if you are driven by money, if you're sticking around to a job because it pays well, you're missing 90% of the picture. And I was like, fucking A, Dave. <laughs> you just set me free to, to do what I've always wanted to do. And I drove over there and I... I did it. I quit my job and started running equipment and there is zero looking back at this point. I mean, I am totally stoked that I'm finally doing it. 18. Yeah. And when I told my mom, she's like, Oh, Bobby, you, you were going to be a big equipment operator. What did she say? A, a big workman. You're going to be a big workman. Huh? Cause as a little kid, that's what I was always talking about being a big workman. And so in my mom's eyes, I've reached big work and status, which is pretty cool to see a smile on my mom's face because she's always supportive of whatever venture I go down and pretty cool. Absolutely. Well, Bob, me and Micah just want to say thank you so much for this experience and, and for, the, for the, the knowledge and the leadership that you have shown us. And uh, today our uh, closing gratitude is a, a Medal of Honor citation for Sergeant Gray. And the citation reads, for conspicuous gallantry and, and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty as acting platoon sergeant, serving with Company A, 1st Battalion, 25th Marines, 4th Marine Division, in action against enemy forces on Iwo Jima, Volcano Islands, February 21, 1945. Shrewdly gauging the tactical situation when his platoon was held up by a sudden barrage of hostile grenades while advancing toward the high ground northeast of airfield number one, Sergeant Gray promptly organized the withdrawal of his men from enemy grenade range, quickly moved forward alone to reconnoiter 
and discovered a heavily mined area extending along the front of a strong network of emplacements joined by covered communication trenches. Although assailed by furious gunfire, he cleared a path leading through the minefield to one of the fortifications, then returned to the platoon position and informing his leader of the serious situation, volunteered to initiate an attack while being covered by three fellow Marines. Alone and unarmed but carrying a 24-pound satchel charge, he crept up the Japanese emplacement, boldly hurled the short-fused explosive and sealed the entrance. Instantly taken under machine gun fire from a second entrance to the same position, he unhesitantly braved the increasingly vicious fusillades to crawl back for another charge, returned to his objective and blasted the second opening, thereby demolishing the position. Repeatedly covering the ground between the savagely defended enemy fortifications and his platoon area, he systematically approached, attacked, and withdrew under blanketing fire to destroy a total of six Japanese positions, more than 25 of the enemy, and a quantity of vital ordnance, gear, and ammunition. Stout-hearted and undomitable, Sergeant Gray had single-handedly overcome a strong enemy garrison and had completely disarmed a large minefield before finally rejoining his unit. And by his great personal valor, daring tactics, and tenacious perseverance in the face of extreme peril, he had contributed materially to the fulfillment of his company's mission. His gallant conduct throughout enhanced and sustained the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. Despite remaining unharmed during his 12 trips back and forth among enemy mines while under heavy fire, Gray was killed six days later on February 27, 1945, at the age of 24, after an enemy shell inflicted fatal wounds on his legs. And with that, this is the Seabag Podcast.